God's Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. As the circumstances of the world become more extreme and confusing, we must tune our ears to the voice of our Heavenly Father. His revelation is essential to navigate the road ahead. Welcome to Current Affairs with Sam Soul. So the man of the sixth day is a reference to an economy of the sweat of the brow. It's underwritten by the torment of fear and people are brought into it, herded into it by this fear of not having enough. And even when, as in the case of Israel, they were supplied every day for 40 years, the apathy of their unwillingness to commit to the truth they had lived in for so long, which was meant to reset their mindsets from the slavery of Egypt, which was quintessentially the sweat of your brow, they would not enter into the rest of God which really would have been the curative result of having been set free from a mindset of slaves. You see, it is, it is not possible to embrace a relationship of sonship so long as you have the mind of a slave. And if you cannot embrace the relationship of a son, you cannot be given an inheritance. Galatians tells us in chapter 4 that you must first be a son in order to be an heir. And what are we tracing all the way through all these exercises? We're tracing the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman inevitably re-enters God's rest. God inevitably brings the seed of the woman back to the challenge of re-entering His rest. It's how it has to be. God doesn't have a plan B for the supporting of His, of his sons, nor does He need one. He established the entire earth to support sonship and everything that the son may rely on is different from what he may produce by the sweat of his brow. The ultimate resource of the son is his father and this is connected to our identity and our purpose. If you do not know who your father is, you're a lost person and you will live out of that being lost to try to provide for yourself. Why? Because your father is your resource. An enormous difference between the economy of the sweat of your brow and an inheritance. You may claim the economy of the sweat of your brow as your own because indeed it is but with it comes the terror 
of always being afraid of not having enough because you are your own and only supply and everything mitigates against you being able to keep what you have acquired by the works of your hands. Everything from the weather to human beings seeking to take it from you. Only in the certainty that your Father is your resource may you rest above the fray and above the storm of thieves, robbers and spoilers of your inheritance, only in your Father. Because the same Father who gave you today's supply is the one who will give you tomorrow's supply. And you see, that lifts you above the mere consideration of living for your supply, living in anticipation of your supply. If your supply is guaranteed and if you accept that your supply is guaranteed, how does that change your mindset? If you are elevated beyond the need for obsessive consideration of what you're going to eat, drink or be clothed with, what then? Then you are free to consider why you are here because your supply is going to be your supply. Why are you here then? And that, you see, moves the, the, the discussion to an entirely different plane. You're moving away from the plane of the natural where the obsession is with what you can get from God based upon how you determine you want to live and what your best life is for you. By the way, the theology of living your best life now has nothing to do with the representation of God, it has everything to do with the comfort generated by the adequacy of your supply. You live and die in the mud if your theology is living your best life now. You'll never be above the dictates of needs and wants and God will have no greater place to you than that of how He guarantees your plans succeeding. If you are freed from that, if you understand that your supply is a given and that it will be adequate, it will be sufficient for what you've been called to do, then you're free to concentrate upon what you're here for. What have you been called by God for? He will supply His calling of you. That raises the bar. Then, you see, we may entertain the thought of how exactly He designed us to represent Him. We understand He will never leave or forsake us, so He dwelling in us means to put Himself on display to bring men to Himself, to bring 
humankind to himself by the excellence of the display of his glory. Men will be brought to repentance, the scriptures say, when they see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Who wears your face? For when you die and are assembled to Christ, your life is now hidden with God in Christ. So when God appears in and through the person of Christ, He'll appear wearing your face. That's how He designed it. These aren't the reckless ambitions of overreaching preachers. This is actually the original intent. The fact that you've been shut out of this means you've been robbed by those whose instructions you followed. And someone who robs you of the truth of what you were given is a thief. You owe a thief nothing but confrontation. So you're free to engage why you are here. Now, this scheme of the devil to continue to define you as a person, man or woman, as a person of the sixth day is an ever-evolving scheme and it reaches a second milestone when the Tower of Babel is built. Here in the eleventh chapter of the book of Genesis, it says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Then uh, they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. Now, so the Lord God scattered them. The Lord went down to see them and so on and said, there's nothing they can't do uh, if they continue on like this. Now verse 9 says, Therefore it is said in the, therefore is that city's name called Babel or Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord God scattered them over the face of the earth. Now, the founder of the city of Babel was a man named Nimrod who was described as a great hunter and he actually began the process 
of building cities. And Babylon was but one of the many cities that he built. Let me see if I can pull the reference up for you. He established the city of Babylon and he was described previously as a hunter of men. He was, he was described as a mighty hunter and was designated as one who hunted men. Now, as the city of Babel continues on, it began to produce a spirit of world domination. Key segue. Just like in the heart of uh, in the heart of this man who was a hunter of men who formed the city of Babel, so it was that this continued to be a place where the domination of men took on a very virulent form. If you go to the book of uh, Daniel, we'll see the highlight on Babylon. And I want you to go to chapter 3 and we'll look beginning at verse 1. This is, <clears throat> this, we're jumping into the middle of the narrative. And because I've covered these things before, I'm not recreating everything I've done before. I'm building on what I've done before. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold. Now, one of the things Daniel warned Nebuchadnezzar about was pride. And in fact, just before he died, um, Nebuchadnezzar was warned about his attitude of subjugating people and thinking that he was greater than he was uh, here in chapter 4. I know I'm jumping around just a bit but I'll go back to chapter 3 where I took you. Nebuchadnezzar the king, and here's where it says, to all peoples nations and languages that dwell in all the earth is how he addresses himself. And he has this vision of a great tree that has been cut down and Daniel tells him that the meaning of this tree, this great tree cut down, this is the end of chapter 4. Um, Daniel says to him, they shall drive men from, they shall drive you from men, your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, uh, and so on. You'll be wet with the dew of heaven 
until seven times have passed over you. Why is that so? Because God wants to put Nebuchadnezzar back into the memory, into the remembrance of the significance of coming into God's rest, the number seven. Verse 26, And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump, the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you, and you, after you will come, after you will come to know that heaven rules. So it was promised that Nebuchadnezzar would have to be destroyed, not killed, but reduced to this abject position if he were going to turn back to the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar recognized that this was a message from God because Daniel had told him that he had, he had become so puffed up in his pride that this was what had to be done. He had to be humbled if he were going to, uh, to have the continuity of his kingdom. Now, before he was humbled is where we are in chapter 3. The condition that would bring about his ruin already existed. And that's what we're looking at in chapter 3. I went to chapter 4 primarily to show you that the hubris that existed in the man was already there. And his way of doing things was of a world dominating figure. The spirit that Nimrod had that was inculcated in his creation known as Babylon or Babel and hence the founding of Babylon now reaches full flower in Nebuchadnezzar. And all I wanted to do was to show you the connection in spirit to between uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and his predecessor Nimrod. Why is this connection so important? In addition to the fact that one is the founder of Babylon and the other is its greatest king. Why is this important? Because the same features that we discovered in Genesis 3 are here again. The man who lives by the sweat of his brow now becomes the man who is so proud that he is described as a tree that reaches to the heavens and rules the world of his day in this dominating fashion. What does that remind us of? Reminds us of this great beast that Daniel will speak about in the book of Daniel. Daniel 7, we're in uh, Daniel 3. This great beast that dominates the whole earth and he gives that to Nebuchadnezzar and says to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the spirit 
that is defined as the head of gold in this great image that you've made uh, to, or the great image that you saw in your dream that presaged the coming of kingdoms. You will, it'll start with you, Nebuchadnezzar, and it will end, it will end with this uh, kingdom that opposes the kingdom of God. And the four great beasts, subsequent vision in Babylon, not one that Nebuchadnezzar had, but one that came in Babylon depicting the voracious appetite of Babylon to consume nations that will live on in the great uh, kingdom at the end of the age which represents the summation of all of, if you like, the sum of all the fears of mankind. And that's why the woman who sits on this beast is called the whore of Babylon, the religious imperative, the the thing that justifies this alternative reality that enslaves mankind. The systems will be there, they'll function, they'll entrap human beings, but the one that justifies it all is this prostitute, a type of the bride, a perverse, corrupt insinuation of being the bride, making it legitimate. So we know that the seed of the, of the woman, who is Christ, will ultimately be, be opposed by a harlot who speaks for the beast. So this is, this is a changeling. Part of the deception that will cause the great falling away to be revealed in a man of lawlessness, part of that will be a false church. I want to, want to move quickly here, and I, I may not get to it in this session, but I will surely get to it in the next session if I don't in this one. Nebuchadnezzar, verse th- uh, 1 of chapter 3, we're introduced in this passage to the second two sixes. The first is a man. With the help of the Lord I've produced a man, or with the help of the Lord I've acquired a man. A man in the sixth day. Anytime we are defined as the sons of men, we're in the sixth day. That is why the order of Melchizedek has no mother or father. We're not the sons of men, we're the sons of God, like the Son of God. It doesn't mean we don't have mothers and fathers in the flesh, but we're not reckoned according to the flesh. And in fact, the admonition to us is that from now on we should know no one any longer according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, Nebuchadnezzar, the king made an image of gold whose height 
was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then the king required everybody to bow down and worship this image. Now this was not an image of one of the gods of Babylon. This was an image in celebration of the triumph of Nebuchadnezzar in the spirit of his forebear, in the spirit of Nimrod who had captured and brought the known world into Babylon. His kingdom was comprised of the nations around him. That's what Daniel, for example, was doing in Babylon. He was taken from his home along with uh, uh, so many others including Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and others mentioned in, in, in the, the narrative of Daniel. That's what they were all doing in Babylon. This spirit captures men. So it, when it is said, it oppresses the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it, that's the spirit of Babylon. It's encompassing. And so we see the culmination, uh, the summation, the summing up of what is in the spirit of Babylon in this great uh, beast which is an economic system and then what is added to it is the designation of the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist pretends to be Christ. Spirit of Antichrist is not opposing the idea of Christ, it is offering a substitute as to who is Christ. This is the nature of the deception. And what aids this spirit of Antichrist in deceiving the people, uh, the inhabitants of the world, is a pretended affiliation with Christ as the bride of Christ, but indeed is a harlot because it bargains for its supply. Its economy comes out of the sixth day, it lives by the sweat of his brow, or its brow, it lives by the economy of its own production. It is not a bride who is submitted to the rule of a husband and derives all of that comes from oneness with the husband, it is one who continues to live apart in its independence from a husband and derives an economy based upon the sweat of its own brow or the skill of its own ingenuity and production. In the next message, we'll show you now the symmetry of all of this. 
it'll bring back in uh, Cain as the first son of Satan. And uh, it will rope in uh, the harlot church with Babylon, which is the descended son of Satan, the creation of Satan, and will empty out into the final warfare between the sons of those who came out of the seed of the woman, namely Christ, and the sons of those who came out of the spirit of the evil one, namely Satan. What we have seen in the entire progression is God declared enmity between the two. They cannot peacefully coexist. And the sons have been given the victory. They will crush the head of the serpent. I'm Sam Solon. We'll finish up uh, looking at the 13th chapter of the book of Revelation, the mark, the number, the name of the beast. You can't cipher these things by reason. They come by revelation, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. This is the day when God is debunking the false, the false prophetic. That's the biggest news in our moment. The biggest church news in our moment is how God has debunked the false prophetic and set them down unceremoniously and they will not rise again. They will form themselves in some aspect of that which opposes the true bride, those who refuse to repent. But we'll see the rising of the true prophetic, clean and whole, having been initially submitted to the voice of the Spirit of God. We'll continue our discussion. I'll see you then. Bye-bye.